0: <clears throat> so I was thinking about some of the movies that I've enjoyed in the past. One of my all-time favorites was a movie called Braveheart. As I can tell, a lot of you guys look, I think, enjoyed it too. As far as I can tell, uh, the movie was historically inaccurate, uh, but it was a fun movie about William Wallace. Um, William Wallace's father and brother was uh, cruelly killed, murdered uh, towards the beginning of the movie. Um, And even his bride, his wife, there was a secret wedding, and she is executed by an English soldier. And then William Wallace sort of reluctantly becomes a part of a revolt, leads the Scottish warriors against the cruel English tyrant who rules Scotland, and it's just A great movie about revenge. For some of you who are younger, you may remember the movie Gladiator. Yeah. Uh, A Roman general played by Russell Crowe is uh, betrayed by uh, the corrupt son of the emperor, and his family is murdered. And it's a movie, uh, you know, rated R. It's violent. I don't. You know, if you have a problem with that, don't watch this. I'm not condoning it, but it's about him returning to Rome as a gladiator and seeking, again, revenge. For the truly young, maybe you remember the movie Taken, right? It's about a retired CIA agent who has a particular set of skills. And he relies on those skills to save his daughter, who's been. Uh, kidnapped while on a trip to Paris, uh, required, which should be required viewing material for all young girls uh, who want to travel on their own or with their friends. But unfortunately, I don't have a particular set of skills like, uh, like him. Um, but it's not just a movie about saving his daughter, in a way. It's about revenge. And I wonder why, uh, for me personally, and maybe for some of you guys as well, uh, that theme of revenge, it's common in movies, and it strikes a chord with a lot of us. It makes it, not only for entertainment, it's actually something that's easy to identify. with. Because what most of us have in common is that we feel like we've been sinned against, we've been wronged, we've been persecuted, Uh, Something has happened to us, and so, well, what can we do? Many of us have trouble seeking out that revenge in life, and so when we watch a movie about it, it's like, yeah. They're doing what we want to do. Well, we look at today's passage in Romans 12, and it's a difficult passage, not in terms of trying to understand the passage, but it's difficult because it talks about something that it's a hard way to live. It's a hard passage to obey. It's a hard passage to embrace and say, oh man, this is a blessing passage. This is what I want to do with my life. But what I'm going to try to do today is to understand, I think, where Paul is coming from as he writes this to you and I. He writes this to the church, not just in Rome, but to us as well. And to understand why he's saying what he says. All right? And not only that, but for those of us who feel like this is a difficult teaching, for maybe us to spend a few minutes trying to understand how we can live this out. As a side note, um, you know, sometimes people feel like when we cover a passage like this, feel like, you know what, uh, the pastoral staff thought they're, you know, they heard of some situations and then they're trying to, you know, <laughs> they want to preach from the pulpit instead of talking to people individually. It's not like that. We're just going through Romans 12. We're going through the life uh, of of what Paul is talking about here, living a uh, uh, Romans 12:1 and 2. In fact, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, <laughs> to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the theme of this uh, sermon series. So we're going to talk about being a living sacrifice. That's the basis of all of this. And as a living sacrifice, in verse 9 of the same chapter, Paul makes it pretty clear. If we're going to live that life, we have to have genuine love. Not a fake love, not an artificial love, um, but a genuine love that hates evil and loves what is good. And Paul fleshes that out for us with several important points. That's what we're going to look at. The first point Paul makes about genuine love is this. He says, if we're to love each other, okay, and, and who cares what the audience is, whether it's non-Christians, people outside of the church, whether he's talking about people in the church, I think that doesn't matter when, when we look at these principles of, of genuine love and, and living uh, that life. is he says, bless and do not curse, verse 14. Bless and do not curse, both of these concepts are similar in that it deals with what you hope for in someone's future, okay? So if you bless someone, it's not that you're throwing, you know, some kind of water on them and you're like, I bless you, all right? Or it's not that you extend your hands in a way or sing a certain song this way, uh, you know, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about when you bless someone is that you would really hope for that you would pray for, that you would desire in your heart for God's favor to fall upon them, all right? For God to fill their hearts and their lives with his grace, with his mercy, with his love. That's blessing someone. You know, may God be with you. May God help you. May God's grace, you know, inspire you and challenge you and transform you. That's blessing someone when you want that and desire that for someone. The opposite of blessing is cursing. And it doesn't matter what kind of language you use. It's not about which word, right? Uh, when, we, when, when I was younger, there were certain words that would never come up on TV. And now they come up. Now they, they're on the radio, they're on TV, they're in the movie. You know, it's not like it's a certain word. When my daughter was younger, uh, my wife told me, you're not allowed to say stupid in the house anymore. I was like, oh, why? So that we're teaching Sophia that that's a bad word. I go, oh. Okay, so I can't say that word, and then you know my sister had a trouble not had trouble not saying that word. So my young daughter went around telling everyone what a foul mouth her auntie had. She would always say bad words, always always say curse words. I thought that was funny. It's not about the actual words. Cursing someone is when you desire, hope for, want destruction and ruin to fall upon them. You know, they cheated you out of $10, so now you want financial ruin to fall upon them. They cut you off uh, on the freeway on your way to work, so now you hope that they would get pulled over and get a ticket, $5,000 ticket fine or something, warrant for their arrest and carpool lane while they're at it. That's cursing someone. Paul says, this is not the principle of genuine love. So more than exactly what we say, it actually cuts to what we feel or what we think and what we desire in our hearts. And that's why it's a difficult teaching, because just like it's easier to pretend you like someone, that you pretend that, yeah, oh, I could put up with them, whatever, but deep down, I don't really, you know, whatever. In the same way, it's easier to fake it with your words, to say the right thing, to act in a way that's socially acceptable. But deep down, you're cursing. Paul says, no. Genuine love doesn't do that. And it's because of what Jesus taught himself in Luke 6, 27, 28. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. John Stevenson says this, we are to bless because we have been blessed. We are to avoid cursing because there is one who became a curse for us. So now you see the principle behind why we can't or why we shouldn't curse and instead bless. It's because we ourselves as sinners who've been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we ourselves are people who benefited from this. Christ became a blessing to us and for us. We have been blessed. And he is the one who became a curse for us instead of cursing us. And so that principle ought to guide how we treat others, how we treat one another. The second thing that Paul talks about uh, in terms of genuine love from Romans 12 is this principle of living in harmony with others living in harmony with others. He starts this concept, I believe, in verse 15, when he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. First, when he tells us and reminds us and and really exhorts us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, again, we're talking about genuine love because the easy thing is to act like we're rejoicing with those who are rejoicing. The easiest thing to do is to act like we're weeping with those who weep. But Paul is calling the church to something, I think, deeper than acting the right way. The key to this rejoicing with someone who's rejoicing and and to make that genuine, I think the key to this, and and here's one of those how-to kind of things if you're looking for this, all right? The key to this is making Christ to be our greatest joy. He has to take his rightful place in our hearts and in our lives, and that comes from the gospel, because if he takes his rightful place in our hearts, and he's our greatest joy, then and only then are we truly able to rejoice with others who are rejoicing. Because we don't have other idols. So here's the principle fleshed out in an illustration. Sometimes, For single people, it's hard. If your idol is marriage, and we can make good things into idols if it's not in its rightful place. If your idol is marriage then the hard thing is that's what you're pursuing. And it's an, it's an improper per, uh, uh, pursuit because you love that or you desire that or you want that more than God himself. And you feel like that will solve all your problems and that's your hope and that's your life goal. Well, if that's what you're making marriage to be, then it is hard to rejoice when that person is getting married and you feel like, dude, I'm better than him or her. If money is your idol and that's what you pursue, then yeah. When you see that person get a raise, or they get the job that you were trying to get, or they get that promotion that you think belongs to you, it's hard to rejoice because we have idols. If success is your idol, if family is your idol, if school is your idol, we could go on and on. When we have idols in our hearts, it prevents us from understanding this basic principle of having Christ first, of him being our ultimate joy, and then being able, as a consequence, to rejoice with others. The opposite of this principle is also true. If Christ is not our greatest joy, if he's not our source of comfort, if he's not our source of peace— Then what happens? You will look towards the circumstances of your life for that joy. You will look towards the circumstances of your life for that peace and for that comfort. And so then it becomes a chasing after what? Whatever it is that you think will bring you comfort. And when you live that life, you're caught in a trap. Everything has to be good in order for you to feel comforted. Everything has to be great in order for you to feel like you have peace in your life and, and, and God has answered your prayers, etc., etc. And it's, it's just this vicious, vicious cycle of you depending upon the circumstances of your life. And in that circle, you will hate anything tough. You will hate suffering. You will hate anything bad. You will hate anything terrible. You will hate weeping. And the last thing you'll want to do is to weep with those who weep. Viktor Frankl, who is not a Christian, but a secular psychiatrist who experienced some tremendous and, uh, tremendously bad times in a Jewish concentration camp. He writes this. He talks about a time when he was confined to a small room. There were cracks in the walls, through the boards of the wall, and he said one day he heard a thumping sound. Thump, thump, thump. And he, when he looked through and peered through the cracks, what he saw was a German soldier dragging the dead body, of his fellow prisoner down the stairs, and that's what was making the thump. What was interesting was his response and what he remembers about that response and what he writes about that response. He says that so great was his own suffering that he confessed to feeling nothing at all when he saw his countrymen and his brother killed, and dragged down the stairs. In his own estimation, he had become so isolated, so emotionally uninvolved because of his own sufferings that he could not connect to his fellow man. I think that's a powerful illustration of what sometimes happens to us. When we put Christ outside of his rightful place, and then we're caught in the life of seeking comfort from everything else, and then because we don't have that, we suffer and we experience suffering, we can get caught up in our own suffering that we no longer feel anything for our brothers and sisters. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep can only be possible. When Christ is the king of our lives, amen? It can only be possible when he is the greatest love of your life. And that will allow us to live then, verse 16, in harmony with another. And and, and here's the thing. What kills harmony, what kills harmony is pride. Verse 16, if you have pride and if, and if you're afraid to associate because of that pride with others because you think you are higher than them, you are better than them, so they are the lowly, you are the worthy. You are wise, they are not. You're smart, you're living life the way it's supposed to be lived, but they are not. And guess what, you might as well throw harmony out the window. It's not going to happen because of our pride. The third thing he talks about in terms of genuine love is, I think, a very difficult teaching. And he begins this in verse 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. I think there was a lot there. A lot there. First of all, if you look at verse 18, there's this big conditional statement. It says, if possible. I think in Paul's estimation and realization, it is not always only up to us that there are situations where, you know, okay, here's the reality. If there's an absence of peace, it's because there are two people, two parties, two families, whatever, two sides to the issue. There's you and then there's them. So he says, if possible, right? If possible, live peaceably. If it depends on you, live peaceably. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably. What Paul is making clear is that although peace and ultimately may not depend only solely on our actions and the actions of Christians or the actions of the church because it does take two people or parties for peace to exist. He is saying for sure, without a doubt, whatever you can do, Live peaceably. If there's not going to be peace, let it be their fault. Because they did not want peace. Because they did not want it. It's on them. Do not let it be your fault. J. Ligon Duncan says, quote, don't let it be your fault. If there is not peace, don't let anybody say that it was because of what you did do not instigate the peace-breaking. Do not disrupt the peace. Already hard. Because he's saying, even though there's two sides of the issue, there is still this side of what you can do. And he says what that that side, look at the end of verse 17. Here's what you can do. You can do this concept of not repaying evil for evil. You can have this concept of thinking, uh, look, what is honorable in the sight of all, all people? He's not just talking about Christians. All people, that there must be, even for Christians and non-Christians alike, for those who have Christ and those who do not have Christ, for those who have been blessed and changed and transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love, and even for those who have not, there is still this under sort of lining standard of what is right and what is wrong, of what is honorable and what is not. And he says that should always guide your actions and thoughts. And on your side, be a peacemaker. And in fact, he's going to expound on this idea of not repaying evil for evil. He says, verse 19, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Now this sounds a little bit puzzling because when you hear this concept of, look, if you're gonna feed your enemy, if you're gonna give him drink when he's thirsty, what you're doing is you're heaping burning coals on his head. So now what this sounds like is like, all right, so someone wrongs you, someone sins against you, someone's persecuting you. The early church, they first faced persecution. This passage is very real to the early church. What do you do? How do you respond? Well, you don't seek out vengeance. Let the wrath of God take care of it. You know what? Do something good, and it's like heaping coals of fire upon their head. That sounds awesome. God, this person did this to me. I leave it to your hands. Be a wrathful God. Be a vengeance. That doesn't even make sense. Just turn it in. I just turned an adjective into a noun. <laughs> have vengeance, I should say. <laughs> right? I, you know, and, and it kind of sounds like, you know, we should have we should make this prayer of like, okay, Lord, I'm not gonna do it. You do it. I'll just watch. It's gonna be awesome. When I get a bag of popcorn, I'm gonna watch. You destroy that person's life. the problem with that is I think it, it, right, and maybe for you too, there's kind of this discomfort with this and or maybe kind of an alarm that goes off in your mind because we just looked at verse 14 which says what? Bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. And when we understand what that means, we feel like, oh yeah, we were just told, just exhorted by Paul not to do that very thing, not to wish destruction and ruin upon someone. Well, that must then at least affect how we are going to understand what Paul is saying here. And here's an illustration I I, I like to use for this. I have freely admitted, and I'm going to get a little personal here, that when I was younger, I was a terrible older brother. I've said this over and over to anyone who listened, I was a really bad older brother. Ever since I was young, I was not nice to my sister, I was cruel, I was mean, I was everything terrible, just not a nice guy. I don't know why I was like that. I I kind of blame it as I was just was non-Christian, <laughs> and you know not. I didn't I didn't I don't know. I just didn't care. I I don't know what it was. And if my sister did anything wrong, well, there were times where I chose to be the judge, and executioner, and the jailer, and I would just play the role, so my dad didn't have to do it. I thought I was helping him. But of course, he was frustrated. And I vividly remember him several times saying to me, Sam, your job, your role, you're the older brother. Love your sister. Care for your sister. Help your sister. Even if she does things, that is not right. And I think his point was, let me be the father. Trust me. Let me be the one to discipline your sister. She's my daughter, after all. You know, he still says that to me today. Take care of your younger sister. Because I think he's so traumatized by what he saw me do, like, my whole life. And I think he still worries that that's how I treat her. And I go, no, 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 I'm nice to her now. Are you sure? You know, this is the principle, I think, that Paul is writing to us and to the church. I think he's saying clearly to us, let me be the judge. Let me take care of it. Trust me. Your job is to be the older brother. Your job is to be the older sister. Love them. Care for them. So when they do something wrong to you, yeah, if possible, you pray for peace. If possible, you bless them. Don't repay evil with evil. This idea of vengeance being belonging to the Lord can maybe be summed up in this weird metaphor that we're not as familiar with in our times of heaping, fiery coal on someone's head, you know, because for us, we think the only time I use coal is when I do barbecuing. And I would only heap those fiery coals on someone's head if I wanted to mar them terribly. It's a terrible thing to do. But again, that would go against exactly what Paul is talking about. And so most commentators will talk about, and I think you know, if, if you're curious, you can turn to Douglas Moo for uh, a great little study on this. He talks about how this is most likely referring to f- helping someone to repent. In fact, some scholars will trace it back to an Egyptian practice where people would walk around on their heads with a tray of fiery coals in order for them to repent and feel contrition over what they've done. I don't know if that sounds kind of far-fetched to you or not, but everyone agrees that what Paul is talking about here, all right, is that loving someone genuinely is gonna cost something. Now, we have to be careful because Loving someone with this genuine love that Paul is talking about here in Romans 12 doesn't mean that you allow someone to keep sinning against you. That if what they're doing is clearly sin and if what they're doing is hurting you or your family and in the process hurting themselves, Paul is not talking about we've got to just love them and let them be and let them continue in that. Clearly what would uh, in the wisdom of all of Scripture is that, no, that's not helping anyone. Being an enabler and allowing someone to sin and to keep sinning and to keep sinning and to keep sinning no matter the cost, that is not the love that Paul is talking about here. But what he is referring to is that genuine love is costly. The love of a mother is costly. The love of a spouse is costly. The love of a brother is costly. The love of a sister is costly. And the love of a Christian is costly because the love of Jesus Christ was costly. That's why at the end of this passage, he says, look, do not be, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here's the ultimate solution to all of this. That there is one way to overcome. And overcome here is a it's a military term that Paul uses. And that term actually means to overpower. So it's not about being a pacifist. It's actually taking a situation and overpowering that situation with good. I don't know if you've ever heard of the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliott. It is one of the most amazing love stories I've ever heard. That's an actual picture of them. That's really them. They're a little bit older than me. They met while they were preparing to go overseas for mission work. They were just friends. They get to Ecuador, they're, they're serving, they're, they're doing the mission work of the church in the remote um, rainforests of Ecuador when they fall in love. Mm. That's not that uncommon, right? Go on missions together, <laughs> it happens. They get married. They raise a family, they have a a beautiful daughter, but Jim feels like God is calling him to reach out to a certain uh, tribe, indigenous people groups, the Wa'orani. The Wa'orani were known to be very violent. In fact, most people who had come in contact with the uh, Wa'orani group, village, whatever you want to call it, uh, had been known to be killed, a fierce group who protected their way of life and their culture. Uh, Jim Elliott, a group of five, uh, four other American men decide that they were going to bring the gospel to this remote indigenous group. And after much prayer and preparation group, and after rehearsing a simple message of goodwill, I'm not going to even try to read this to you, but it meant I like you and I want to be your friend. They make an initial successful contact with three people from that tribe. But that's the last contact that anyone ever has with Jim Elliott again. The next time, they're found with a spear through their bodies. They were speared to death. And Elizabeth Elliott had a 10-month-old daughter. For me, that would have been a clear message from God to go home, right, to end this to return. There's too much evil here. Elizabeth does the unimaginable and decides to remain and to stay. And in her own words, she describes it as a miracle of God, but she meets two women from the Wa'onari people group, two women. And they end up staying with her for over for like a year. And during that time, her heart keeps pulsing, keeps growing, and at the end of that year, she decides to reach out, and she, for two years, with her daughter, lives amongst the Warunari people, simply trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of her life, she has inspired not just the people that were directly around her, but many people. In fact, she is called one of the most influential Protestant women to have ever lived because she has affected so many missionaries after her and challenged so many people after her. And you might think, like, I was like, man, there is no way I could live that life. Maybe you hear her story and Jim's story, and you think, well, that's great for them, but that's not my story. But what we have to remember is that the reason why Elizabeth Elliot was able to do what she did was because she was affected by another story the ultimate story of overcoming evil with good and it's the story of how man was separated from the holy creator and perfect king because of sin and this great problem of separation of alienation from God from the Creator was solved by one man one God the perfect man God Jesus Christ And he lived the ultimate life and example of overcoming evil with good. The ultimate example of not cursing anyone, but instead becoming a blessing to all men. Of not repaying evil with evil. Of overcoming evil with good. And that's the same story which ought to move you and I today to say, you know what? I have to have, I should have, genuine love in my life. Maybe it's not going to be easy, but that's the love I should have. And the way to do it is to put Christ first. To make him your prize, your greatest joy. To preach the gospel to yourself over and over and over again. Until we remember... All right, What kind of sinners we are, how much patience God has with us, how much patience he had with us, how much patience he will have with us, until we remember that the life of Christ was to tear down all the walls of prejudice, to tear down all the walls of pride, so that no one could point to another and say, I'm better than you. I deserve more than you. I deserve God more than you. He came to tear all of those kinds of walls down so that the church would look at even people outside of the church, and if they're hungry, to give them food, and if they're thirsty, to give them drinks, not just to think good thoughts, but to actually act and do the honorable thing. This is a crazy, crazy passage, which teaches us that we have to transform our lives. But praise God, it's not up to you and me, but it's the gospel and the love of Christ that saves us and transforms us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is much easier to hate than it is to love. It is easier for us to curse than to bless. It is easier to seek revenge and vengeance than it is to pursue peace. But Lord, your gospel, your life was the exact opposite of all of those things. And we pray that you would help us to take the necessary steps, as small as they might be today, to love others with the love of Christ. To have that genuine love, to put you first, and to live the correct and resulting life that should stem from that kind of great love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time.